0: Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Today on the podcast, we focus on state and national politics. Coming up in just a bit, Chicago Democrat Mike Quigley sits on the House Intelligence Committee and has a front row seat to the impeachment hearings.
1: It's not the end of a Hallmark movie. It's the end of a really bad reality TV show brought to you by someone who knows a lot about that.
0: But first, after 41 years in the legislature, Illinois Senate President John Cullerton will be stepping down in January.
2: Illinois Senate President John Cullerton shocks Springfield with the news that he's retiring as lawmakers come up empty on the revised Chicago casino plan. The 71-year-old Democrat took over the post 11 years ago. Cullerton said he'd step down in January but hasn't given an exact date yet.
0: Collerton made the surprise announcement last week on the final day of the fall veto session. WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKenney is here to explain what this means for Illinois politics. But Dave, before you talk about Collerton, can you first just recap what went down in the final days of the fall veto session?
2: Well, I mean, Mayor Lightfoot had high hopes for getting some things done. Of course, she wanted to tweak the law that set up a Chicago casino. She wanted to lower the tax rates. She also wanted to increase Uh, The real estate transfer tax in Chicago, both of those were integral parts to her budget making. Neither of those things got over the finish line, and uh, they're likely to resurface in the spring. Uh, Governor Pritzker got a big victory, I think, with uh, the, the consolidation of suburban and downstate police and fire pension funds. I mean, it seems like an arcane type of thing, but it could save some money because a lot of these funds just kind of duplicate services and, and things like that. So that was a victory for him. But by and large, I mean, this Cullerton thing we're about to talk about was a big thing. And I think everybody in Springfield was sort of preoccupied by the all the investigations that are going
0: on. Well, what do we know about why Cullerton is stepping down?
2: Well, I mean, this this came uh, at, uh, on Thursday, the last day of session. He, he made an announcement behind closed doors to his caucus, and he basically laid it out this way, that he had made this deal with his wife, Pam Cullerton, that now was the time he wanted to step down. He's been in Springfield for four decades, uh, one of the longest-serving active members down there. And basically he presented this as a family decision. You know, I think people were immediately skeptical that that was – the case. I mean, I think with this investigation that we've been reporting on here and and others have uh, involving ComEd and lobbying and the FBI raids and such, people were, were naturally curious about whether Cullerton had gotten involved in some of this, and his staff said right out of the gate, no, that wasn't the case.
0: How have lawmakers been reacting to this news?
2: Well, I think there was, uh, in the opener there, I think uh, Parachutes was talking just sort of that stunned feeling. That's really what it was. People were caught off guard for this. I mean, you know, about a year or so ago, Cullerton had kind of laid a clue that he was thinking about doing this. He told a few people in the caucus, uh, the Senate Democratic caucus, that maybe they might want to start lining up support if they intended to replace him. but then nothing ever happened with that and then now finally it did. It creates a power vacuum, no question and it really kind of upends the power structure in Springfield because in Cullerton you had a guy who really knew how to get things done. I mean, I would say he, he was a very effective legislator because he, he worked both sides of the aisle quite well.
0: And talk a little bit more about his legacy and this power vacuum that he's leaving behind.
2: This is a guy who came to Springfield in the late 70s and uh, has been there ever since. He, he came to the Senate in 1991. He was appointed when Don Clark Netch won statewide office. Early in his career, you know, he had aspirations to move to Washington, D.C., and in, he decided in 1994 to challenge then Congressman Dan Rostenkowski, who had been weakened because of a House Ethics probe that eventually took him down, and one of the the gimmicks, I guess you could say, R- Cullerton was was known for in that campaign was sending bullet casings around to members in the congressional district, and of course it got everybody's attention. It freaked everybody out because they didn't know where these things were coming from, so it kind of backfired. He wound up losing that election, and then settled in. In the state senate. And since then, uh, he's kind of quietly risen in the ranks, you know, routinely year after year, having his name on the most bills to get to the governor's desk. So he he's put an imprint on things that, you know, average Illinoisans deal with on a daily basis. You know, you wear a seatbelt in your car now, for example, because Cullerton was the author of the bill that required that child car seats was another thing that, that he's famous for and he's been active uh, in you know efforts to tax cigarettes and to uh, you know the indoor Clean Air Act he was involved in so I mean he's left his imprint no question about it
0: Well, you mentioned Governor J.B. Pritzker. He issued a statement saying, in part, quote, John Cullerton has been a passionate advocate for improving Illinois, whether it was his focus on ending the scourge of youth smoking, dedication to fully funding education or efforts to advance critically needed infrastructure throughout the state.
2: What does this change in leadership mean for Governor Pritzker? It increases his standing in a way. I mean, I think after his first session as governor, I mean, he's really kind of established himself as a pretty effective governor, just in terms of getting things over the finish line. Cullerton helped a great deal with many of those things. I mean, we we had you know the, the forty five billion dollar infrastructure program, for example, legalization of marijuana, casino expansion, on and on. You know, I think that there is a, a line of succession underway now where you know there there will be. You know, a leader coming out of that caucus that the governor can work with. I don't see any kind of problems there. But it definitely, as we talked about here, it surprised and upended the power structure in Springfield. And now people are just sort of like taking a deep breath and figuring out where to go next.
0: Well, Senate GOP leader Bill Brady praised Cullerton's, quote, integrity, honesty, and humor. He went on to say, Senate President John Cullerton has led the Illinois Senate with honor and distinction, and our chamber will forever be better as a result. Under the previous administration, Governor Rauner, we had a huge (laughs) loggerhead when it came to getting legislation passed, getting a state budget passed. But you talk about Senate President John Cullerton as being someone who worked on both sides of the aisle. How important is it going to be? to be for the next senate president to bring that to the table.
2: Well, I mean, Republicans right now in Springfield are are they're, they're not extinct, but they're an endangered species. It's always good for Democrats in power as they are to be able to say that they've passed things on a bipartisan basis because it shows it shows independent voters out there that they've got their eye on the ball and they're trying to to do good things. We heard all sorts of plaudits like that for Cullerton because he, he had a lot of friends on both sides of the aisle. And in his his uh, statement that came out after his announcement, I mean, he pointed to the former Senate Republican leader, Christine Radonio, and said that you know one of his proudest moments was in that Rauner era when we went two years without a budget. I mean, Cullerton and Radonio, Republican and Democrat, got together to try to break the dam on that. And they put together this gigantic... Package they called it a grand bargain that would have broke the budget impasse and you know I think there were there were components in there that dealt with gambling and pensions and pretty much the whole kitchen sink and it looked like it was going to get done and then at the last minute Rauner kind of pulled the plug on it and uh, it, it it failed but what it showed again was that Cullerton could work with both sides. And that's one of the things he'll be remembered for. And one thing, you know, about his past that I I don't think many people know about, and I, I mean, I certainly would not blame John Cullerton for the state's pension problems, but he uh, he sat on a committee in 1989, I believe. I was researching this when I was doing work about the the state pension problem. And there's this thing about a compounding COLA. It's a cost of living adjustment that really is at the root of our pension problems. It, it, every year, retirees get a 3% increase and it compounds. And he was on the conference committee, uh, uh, or he was on the, on the legislative committee that signed off on that. And it's something that not a lot of people realize, that he was kind of involved in what seemed like a good idea at the time, but, but in hindsight has been kind of a disaster for the state.
0: Will his absence make a difference in that conversation?
2: some people, anyway, were sort of scratching their head about his sort of slow response in dealing with some of this. I guess what I'm talking about in particular is that, you know, in late September, the FBI raided the state house office and home of State Senator Martin Sandoval, a fairly high-ranking member of the Democratic Caucus, former chairman of the Senate Transportation Committee. And Cullerton was very slow to react to that. And, you know, he fought efforts uh, here at WBEZ to get access to the the search warrant that the feds used to enter the office. And it, it, it of course, offered a roadmap about what they were looking for. He was slow to call for uh, Sandoval to step down from that chairmanship. And so I think, you know, there was a little bit of uh, head scratching about why are you doing that? But I think in the end, it was probably loyalty to a member, an ally that had been with him for quite a while. And I think you know there will definitely be efforts to pass some sort of big ethics package. We saw a hint of that in the veto session. It wasn't one of the things we talked about just now, but there was an effort to to uh, increase some transparency, you know, elements here dealing with lobbyists and with uh, with lawmakers. But I think that we're going to see a lot more of this if this federal investigation into uh, ComEd and to you know you know presumably it could be headed much higher up the ladder than that politically. You know, once once we get a lay, the lay of the land about what the feds are doing there, I think legislators are going to be compelled to act on some sort of ethics reform.
0: Who is lining up um, as a possible successor for Cullerton?
2: Well, I mean I- – in people I talk to, I mean, I think there's sort of a, a perceived front runner in the Senate Democratic Caucus, and that's State Senator Kimberly Lightford. She's a, uh, a long-serving Democrat from Maywood. Uh, she's had time on the Senate Education Committee. Uh, she would be, if she winds up uh, getting that, she would be the first woman of color to head uh, in any of the legislative caucuses in Springfield. So I think that you know she has. Uh, I, I think a lot of people in Springfield uh, Democrats, particularly, like. Like having the party go that direction, and so you know there are others that are that are that are in the mix. Of course, uh, you know Heather Staines, Don Harmon, um, Melinda Bush. I'm um, probably leaving out a couple, but, but there, there are people that have, have uh, thrown their names out. But I do think the front runner at this point is, uh, is Senator Lightford. And so what are the next steps in choosing the next Senate president? Well, Cullerton made clear that he intends to stick around until uh, January. And I think you know they don't come into session until the final week of January for two or three days. And, and I think it's at that point that we'll see uh, probably a vote by the Senate Democrats and, and the chamber as a whole. The whole chamber votes on it. Uh, to elect a successor, and so between now and then um, you know Lightford and the others are going to be trying to line up support, but I do get the sense that she has made significant headway in lining up support.
0: well, quickly before I let you go, you've alluded to the investigation into comed what's the latest on that story?
2: Well, I think people uh, i I talked to somebody that had been in Springfield last week and and you know the the the, the the whole place is just on edge. They there there's a, a sense that you know something imminent is going to drop. Be it be it uh, you know indictments, be it more charges. Um, you know certainly uh, in our reporting here at WBEZ, we've we've you know documented I think what the feds have been looking at in terms of how ComEd, in pursuit of of uh, you know big legislative deals that have helped bail out some of their nuclear plants and 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 such you know, the way that they were doing some lobbying has raised a lot of questions and it's attracted the, the interest of the of, uh, federal investigators. I think, um, you know, charges appear to be imminent. So that's, you know, stay tuned.
0: That's WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKenney. You can follow his reporting on the federal investigations into ComEd at WBEZ.org. Dave, thanks for speaking with
2: us. Jen, thanks for having me.
0: The public phase of the impeachment hearings opened last week on Capitol Hill. One of the people who got to ask questions of witnesses was Congressman Mike Quickley. Quigley represents the 5th Congressional District and serves on the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, welcome to Reset.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, As I mentioned earlier, we've heard from three witnesses so far in the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. What stood out to you from this first
1: week? I think you heard the cream of our diplomatic corps people who serve in extraordinary areas, uh, do it well in a very clear, compelling, credible, and I think consistent way described a shadow foreign policy. That foreign policy was contrary to the longstanding U.S. policy to benefit the President of the United States on a political basis. Uh, I think it struck with me was that if you take the whistleblower's complaint, which is where this all began, The transcript of the White House call, uh, the Volcker messages, and of course Mulvaney's admission, uh, we have an incredibly consistent story of the president's crimes and misdemeanors.
0: The Trump administration has pushed back on that saying, listen, this is just how we do business. It's necessary for us to strike deals with foreign governments. How do you respond to those claims?
1: I think it's one thing if you were to say to a foreign government, Generally, as we have in the past, our benefit to you is tied to you doing something to make your country stronger or to make our alliance stronger. Uh, I haven't seen anything in my career in public service that tells me it's okay to strike a deal where it benefits the president of the United States politically. This comes off either as extortion or uh, solicitation of a bribe.
0: Well, as former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich was about to testify, President Trump tweeted, quote, everywhere Marie Ivanovich went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? End quote. You said yesterday on CPS News that these tweets amount to witness intimidation. Explain that.
1: Well, I think you have to look back at the pattern of behavior here. This isn't the first time the president has done something like this. When his personal attorney, who knew the worst of his personal and business dealings uh, came forward to tell the truth. He called him a rat. Uh, When Paul Manafort and Roger Stone said they would never, in their words, squeal, sounds like a mobster movie, uh, he said they were good guys. Uh, So it's very clear what he's telling the rest of these folks. I think you also have to put that, juxtaposition this with the fact that the President of the United States dangled pardons during the Mueller investigation, and uh, the fact that he did pardon the sheriff in Arizona, it's very clear he's willing to use all his powers to protect himself. And here I was at the beginning of the ambassador's testimony thinking the Republican strategy will be to tamp down the notion that uh, there was a smear campaign against her. And right on cue, the president smears her um, to a national audience. Extraordinary situation in D.C.
0: And to your mind, why does that rise to the level of witness intimidation if the president, as he says, is just expressing an opinion about her service and he says that opinion is protected by his First Amendment
1: rights? Everyone has their First Amendment right, but there are always limitations. Here in front of a national audience, while someone is testifying, he's uh, attacking her. What does that tell anyone else? in career service, or in any position, for that matter, who wants to come forward and tell the truth? What does that tell a whistleblower? What does that tell anyone who wants to say something bad against the President of the United States? He's coming after you. He's going to try to ruin your reputation. Uh, he pretty much ruined her career. And to attack her after, what, three decades service in some of the most dangerous Places in the world, uh, once at least literally under fire, you, you don't get appointed to a position like that unless you're one of the best of the best. Ukraine is at war with one of our greatest adversaries, Russia. And in the middle of that tenure, as she was about, actually, when she was about ready to finish, they asked her to extend her stay. She had an impeccable record. So, These folks see what happened to her. It's intimidating to anyone else to think that if they speak out, or even if they're just trying to do the right thing, as she was during her tenure there, that the president won't come after them.
0: Congressman, what types of conversations are you having with your Republican colleagues around impeachment?
1: I've always felt that uh, some of my Republican colleagues understand the kind of president we have. I think those that have stood up to him Unfortunately, with the exception of perhaps Senator McCain and a few other instances who are either on their way out the door or already gone. Uh, Speaker Ryan, in his book and recent criticism of the president, is an example. Many others, again, on their way out. I think there are a large number of Republicans who, if this was anonymous vote, would vote for impeachment. They recognize this as a person who has abused his powers as president of the United States. Those are conversations I've had, but they recognize if they were to stand up against this president, um, they would probably lose a Republican primary.
0: Congressman Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff is waiting to confer with other House Democrats before moving forward on articles of impeachment, but he's hinted that bribery and high crimes and misdemeanors could be on the table. At this point, where do you stand? Do you feel you have enough information to call for the impeachment of the president?
1: I asked the public to put themselves in my place. Uh, Reread the Mueller report. It's pretty clear in that reading that the special counsel felt there were at least 11 times in which the president of the United States obstructed justice. And he said quite plainly, there is a Justice Department regulation that says you can't indict a seated president. So I, and having been part of this investigation for three years, have witnessed these crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, I think what we've witnessed since that time is a continuation of that obstruction as these issues play out in the courts. And clearly here, I think the week before, uh, we reached the number of 12 people that the president blocked from testifying, four in one day. In the 1974 impeachment articles against Richard Nixon, Article 3 talks about obstruction of justice. It gives four instances in which Richard Nixon obstructed Congress. This president has obstructed Congress Four times in one day. But I get what the chairman of the Intelligence Committee is saying. Uh, that we're going to hear out the rest of this evidence. Uh, you don't complete an investigation just because you think you have enough. You hear it all out. And if the president wants to come testify, or if indeed he had someone willing to come who could help exonerate him, particularly of the charges involving Ukraine, uh, so be it. But I do think that if we if the president had anyone who could help exonerate him, they would have been beating down the door.
0: Well, should the House vote to impeach the president, the process, of course, then heads to the Senate, where a two thirds majority would be required to remove the president from office. How likely do you think that is to happen?
1: You know, I have thought about that. I think what struck me first is this. This is a president who has never been held accountable for wrongdoing in his life. Uh, Once he realizes he's gotten away with something, frankly, he goes on to worse things, as we have witnessed here. So I felt that regardless of how anyone judged what the Senate would do, that we had to call the president to account. We had to bring forward these allegations simply because if we were to say, oh, well, the Senate will never impeach him anyway, we'll let him do whatever he wants to do. That's the alternative. So I'd like to think that public pressure, and we saw recent polls moving the dial, uh, this is resonating, that senators will move forward and do the right thing. But I can't act for them. I can only act for my constituents and do what I think is right.
0: Well, hearings continue tomorrow through Thursday. What are some of the key things you'll be watching for?
1: I think you'll see a continuation of what you saw last week, Uh, I've, I've seen almost all of these depositions, and I think what's going to be striking to the American public is that they build upon each other. Most of these witnesses speak with one voice, and they're extraordinarily consistent. It was striking to me that Mr. Sondland's testimony was the only one in which there was an addendum which he uh, later acknowledged, oh, yeah, there was a quid pro quo. He didn't say those words, but what he described was indeed a quid pro quo. So uh, I think you're going to see a continuation of that process. Uh, There's always surprises, uh, some drama, and I suspect as we also witnessed uh, a little Barnum and Bailey uh, out there. But regardless of whether people think it's exciting, it is important Uh, And it's something that most Americans should watch.
0: That's Congressman Mike Quigley. He's a Democrat representing Illinois' 5th Congressional District. Congressman, thanks for speaking with us.
1: Anytime. Thank you.
0: that's today's Reset. As we mentioned in that conversation with Congressman Quigley, there will be more witness testimony this week, so Reset the Show will be preempted. But Reset the Podcast will be dropped in your feed at 4 p.m. just in time for your commute home, or play it while you're getting dinner ready. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.